Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. So we wanted to explore that dynamic and how this all politics is national framework might apply to Oregon, how locally you can actually transcend partisan political dynamics at the national level to be productive at the state level. Our podcast is very much how like actual laws get made in Oregon. It's a curated conversation <laughs> where we talk to someone interesting. Like once you've talked to 10 different people who have 10 different views on one policy issue, and you can understand it from each of their perspectives, that's something I would argue most of our colleagues in the political space aren't as skilled at. Now that the legislative session is over, it's time for Oregon's activists, candidates, and political committees to turn their attention to the 2024 elections. With government regulation of political activities becoming more complicated nearly every year, and with political actors increasingly initiating complaints and litigation to achieve political goals, having experienced legal counsel has become critical to success in the political arena. Harang Long PC has represented clients involved in candidate and ballot measure elections for decades. To learn more about Harang Long's political law practice, check out our website at harang.com. That's www.harrang.com. We're going to talk today with Ben Bowman and Reagan Knope. So let's talk about tonight's session. The title is uh, The Oregon Bridge. And the key thing here is that this gives us a chance to hear from Ben Bowman and Reagan Knope. They are two of the people who have, Ben's been on there the whole time. I think for a while there was a third one. Alex mm -hmm. was with you. We booted him. Yeah, something happened to him. I noticed he disappeared. <laughs> so they run the Oregon Bridge podcast, which I think about weekly comes out with a new episode. And they talk to various folks who are active in or think about or, crit or critique Oregon politics or even sometimes national politics. There's an interesting one on Harry Truman and I'm halfway through. One of my favorites. Yeah. And they talk to anybody, as far as I can tell, from any part, point in the political spectrum. And they themselves represent a broad range of the political spectrum. I have some information about them here. I'm missing the first line of your, uh, I think you didn't print out the first line of yours, Ben. It says, your family supports a Gladstone School District. What was the first line? <laughs> I think that I'm a state representative. It does say that. Okay, so you are a state representative, a Democrat from the 25th District. Tigard. Tigard. Before joining the legislature, Ben was chair of the Tigard Twalton School Board and the Innovation and Partnership Strategist in the Oregon Department of Education. He graduated from the University of Oregon and earned a master's degree in education policy from Stanford University. Also co, I'm going to say manages or co-runs and owns a small business and hosts the podcast, which we already knew that part. Reagan is uh, chief of staff to the Oregon Senate Republican leader, Tim Knope. Might be related. Just coincidence. My father. <laughs> He's also a political consultant who has run campaigns from local school board to Congress. Reagan and his wife and kids. How many kids? Two kids. Two kids live on their farm outside Albany, Oregon. So what I'd like you to do as a start is just to tell us a little bit about how the Oregon Bridge came started, what you were trying to do at the outset with creating the Oregon Bridge. Just a little bit of history, how it came along, and then how Reagan became involved along sure. the way. So and first... Reagan, the, you should share that. The, uh, <laughs> the first disclaimer we always have to give is, Reagan has a day job, I serve as a state rep, and I have a separate day job. On the podcast and this evening, we're speaking only from our personal opinions and not representing any of the people we work for or work with. 
origin of the podcast, Alex Titus, first co-host of the pod. Him and I went to college together. In college, he was like a extreme libertarian, and I've always been a relatively progressive Democrat. And then as those always happens, Alex became a regular Republican. Yes, Alex evolved into being a regular Republican as he matured politically. But we'd stayed in touch. He did some national work. He worked in the Trump administration. I'd been focusing mostly on state and local politics in Oregon. And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit tonight. It's the place where I think you can have the biggest impact. And I think I had just lost a race for state Senate in the primary. And Alex was moving back to Oregon from D.C., and we wanted to collaborate and work together on something, and everybody was starting a podcast. Everybody was starting a podcast. There's too many podcasts in the world. But we did think that there was an unexplored niche in Oregon politics. There really wasn't anyone producing the type of content we would have consumed, with the exception of like OPB sometimes with Think Out Loud, has some cool programming. So we decided we would start a podcast with the two of us, with the idea being what's not super productive is a debate show, right? Where it's like, here's the left, and here's the right, and they're going to discuss or fight each other on who's right. But instead, I'm on the left, he's on the right, we have different worldviews, but let's talk to interesting people, see where there's alignment and see if we can be constructive. So that was the vision. And Alex ended up moving to Florida before he left. He had introduced Reagan and I, and then we drafted Reagan. And that's sort of how I got involved because Alex was moving to Florida. So the time difference makes it a lot harder to podcast. He was... Uh, was, was he married at that point or getting married? Now he has a kid. Yeah, that's right. And so his life was getting busy, and so it was a little easier for me, although it became less easy, <laughs> to schedule podcasts and kind of co-host with Ben. So I spent a lot of time in conservative politics, just working in campaigns, working in the legislature for a few years before my current job. I came to the legislature in 2013 with my dad when he was first elected to the Senate. He had served in the House before when the Republicans were actually the majority in the Oregon House, and that was in the 90s and then early 2000s, and he served as the majority leader. I was like five, and so I was just running around the Capitol as a little kid. And so then I get back in 2013 to the Capitol, and all these people who work, who are some of them still working in the Capitol be like, I remember you when you were this tall. And I was like, I just have no idea who you are, but it's very <laughs> nice to meet you for the first time in my semi-adult life. I was like 16 at the mm -hmm. time. And... So then I just kind of followed wherever the, you kind of just, if you're in, uh, you know, working as a, sort of a political operative, you're just kind of follow the jobs as they come to you, right? Opportunity to work on a campaign here, manage a campaign there, school board. So I did some school board races. I've done some state ledge races, did one race for Congress, didn't like it very much. Probably won't do any more of those for a number of reasons, but generally loved politics and just loved working with different people and different candidates and got to learn a whole bunch of different communities. I did Salem, Albany, Medford, all over the place, and was also kind of following my wife's jobs because she was in law school when we first started dating. We got married, she graduated law school, and then she got a job with the Department of Justice, and that's kind of what took us to Southern Oregon. And so then I get back, I work as political director for Oregon Right to Life, and then leave that because I was a little burnout of politics. And that is when I sort of got back in with the podcast. I was mm. doing some writing for online website, kind of a conservative Oregon Catalyst is what it's called, OregonCatalyst.com. And I wrote and I was their editor-in-chief for six years. But that was just all volunteer efforts. But I was generally feeling a little burned out of politics at the moment. It takes a lot out of you and it's a lot moving, you know, all over the state and from campaign to campaign. And I was like looking for something a little more established. And the podcast really appealed to me because I have a ton of opinions about politics, <laughs> but not a lot of places to express them except for Twitter, which Ben wishes I would stop doing. And delete I probably should, your but I'm not, I'm not going to at this point. <laughs> 
because it's too much fun. But anyway, it was a good outlet, I think, to kind of express some of my opinions, but also hear other people's opinions. Because when you're going all over the state, you get to meet a bunch of people. But obviously, when you, I was staying at home, and I was also, we didn't have any, you know, the childcare situation is really rough out there. And so I was watching our two kids from home. But I was like feeling like I needed an outlet. And so the podcast was a really good outlet to get me back into politics. And then my dad called and he said, I'm going to be the minority leader. Well, he is the minority leader for a little bit at that point. But he wanted some help. And so I came back to his office and I've been in the legislature ever since. And it'll probably stick this time. I'll probably stay. But we'll see if anyone else wants to hire me after he's done with me. Okay, good. So you've mentioned that part of the reason for doing the program you, the way you are with a bipartisan or multipartisan point of view mm-hmm. was to try to do something different than just the <clears throat> debates. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about the vision you had for what the podcast might accomplish. And if this vision has developed over time, I'd like to hear about that too. The initial vision that Alex and I started with was everybody's heard the Tip O'Neill, all politics is local expression, right? Tip O'Neill, famous speaker of the House, he said, all politics is local. And the idea was like, even at the congressional level, these federal politicians need to pay attention to what was going on locally because that's how they were going to get reelected. A lot of contemporary political observers would say that's been flipped. And a lot of people say now all politics is national, which means like if Donald Trump comes into your safely Republican district and endorses someone, they have a gigantic advantage in winning that race and vice versa. On the Democratic side, national figures, national issues, issues like immigration, or like I receive emails as a state representative asking for my opinion on the conflict in the Middle East. And so increasingly, there's this expectation that national political issues will determine whether or not you're on my team whether you're on my side. And so we wanted to explore that dynamic and how this all politics is national framework might apply to Oregon. So that's how I would say, I don't know, the first third. Were we even talking about that by the time you started? I feel like we, we kind of quickly abandoned that because it's less, it's more limiting in what you can talk about. I think the dynamic is true, but I also think it's, it's not always true. And what's more interesting sometimes is when it's not true, how locally you can actually transcend partisan political dynamics at the national level to be productive at the state level. I would say it was barely there, but for the most part, we had just a need to fill every week worth of episodes, (laughs) basically. And so we were looking for, Ron, you were sort of right when you said, we'll have most anybody on. Like, (laughs) there's sometimes where it doesn't make sense for the timing, or like one candidate reaches out in a race of eight candidates, and we're not able to interview everybody, or it would take up, you know, we wouldn't have time to do it or whatever. But for the most part, we do let a lot of people on from a lot of different viewpoints, because it's worth hearing them. And there will be many episodes where, and it's not necessary for either of us to come to agreement with either of the hosts that we're talking about, but we're just trying to hear their perspective. And then I think the other thing is ask smart questions. Like we don't really care about the questions everybody's already asked and answered for the most part. To the extent that we can ask smart questions, we try to do that. And then the other like subgenre of our show that has always been deeply fascinating, and I want to try to find more guests in this, is Oregon political history. Mm -hmm. Because the state-level politics of Oregon isn't that very well documented. You have some of it in the news, but every time they change their websites, you tend to lose a lot of their articles. And especially the local papers as they get bought and sold and all that stuff, you just lose all this like super valuable political background. So we've had Nigel Jacobs from Willamette Week. We had Jeff Mapes, who's since retired from OPB. These people who have been doing journalism and Oregon politics longer than Ben and I have been alive. Mm -hmm. And they just told incredible stories about like the scandal with Neil Goldschmidt as governor or what the political environment was in the Capitol in the 90s when the Republicans controlled the legislature, but the Democrats had the governor's branch. I mean, there's just so many fascinating stories that are out there in people's heads, but so many of them haven't been recorded anywhere. And so to the extent we can record even a few of those in the podcast, I feel like it'll have been 
worthwhile. And so I think those are the two things. So generally we're looking for current organ politics, relevant stuff, and then organ political history. I just listened to the Goldschmidt one for the second time. I think that might be our best it's episode, actually. Episode. It, it was, yeah. It's incredible. So Jim Moore, you probably know Jim Moore. He, oh, he works yeah. at the McCall Center at Pacific yeah. University. Yeah. He told the story. What's the Netflix documentary about the Rajneeshis? Wild Wild Country. If you've seen Wild Wild Country, you know this crazy story. But there's basically this religious cult that came to Oregon and started taking over this tiny little town. Bikatia, who's governor at the time, carried around in his pocket an executive order declaring martial law in Wasco County and was ready to sign it at any moment. And what Jim said is it wasn't because he was worried about the Rajneeshis taking over. He was worried that the folks of Antelope, Oregon, this tiny little town, were going to have an armed rebellion where they were going to go after the Rajneeshis and they were going to need to send in the National Guard or the state troopers or whatever. So there's all kinds of little nuggets like that that sound wild by today's standards, but happened not that long ago in Oregon yeah. history. Interesting. So the question was how your vision had changed. I think we worked on that. We finished the describing. How the, what would you describe the vision of the podcast now? I think it's more the recording Oregon political history. So some of it is we're just recording current history to be listened right. to later. And then some of it is going back and trying to find either interesting people or interesting stories. And usually it's we ask the interesting person and they actually have a story we don't know about mm -hmm. or a deep level understanding of a story we've only seen the top level of. And so asking them to go deeper on the podcast has resulted in a couple of those really good episodes. There was also the one about the Department of Corrections head that was murdered, essentially. But they just released Frank Gable, who was thought to be the guy who killed him. And then it turns out he'd served like 30 year sentence for not doing that crime. And so now we don't know who actually killed the Department of Corrections head when there was a ton of corruption in the Department of Corrections. And it's just an absolutely wild story. And Ben interviewing his brother, the brother of the victim, was the like my first exposure to that. So like I even get yeah. Ben and I get exposed to new stuff on the podcast via the other host, and that was just like the wildest story I've heard. I was like, they killed him, and they don't even know who did it. <laughs> like that was, uh, yeah. Or they did, and they they prosecuted him with very like limited evidence. It was just a it's just a crazy story. So the other category of episodes, I'd say, is our audience is mostly like. I don't want to say political insiders because that's not necessarily true, but people who are like tracking politics, people who read the newspaper, people who are following what's going on in the legislature, at least to some level, they might work for a state agency or, you know, be a PCP in their local community. So the, the other category is like trying to build frameworks for people to think about hard problems. So like we've done episodes on housing and homelessness, like how should a smart person who is perplexed by this housing and homelessness crisis, think about it. We need to do the Measure 110. But, like, Measure 110 is a great one. So, like, what... We what, did sort of the drug crisis in Portland, but we haven't got into the specifics the of contemporary. Yeah, like, an example of what we would love to do is, like, probably separate podcasts, because, again, I don't think a debate... A debate isn't what we do. Debate can be useful, but it's not what we do. One episode where we could do a deep dive with the folks who believe Measure 110 is working, mm -hmm. um, or at least moving us in the right direction, and try to deeply understand why... What data do they bring to the table that supports that? What problem were they solving when they advanced it? And then have an episode with the folks who are trying to overturn it and get their sense. Again, just to provide context and a framework for engaged people to think about this in an intellectual way. So that last description, I mean, because you were talking about the history and I, I recognize that. But then there are a lot of people who talk about aren't talking about history. They're talking about right now. That's right. And so that last idea where you would look for an opportunity to get both sides of the 110, and there might be more than two sides. Mm -hmm. I want to know how that interacts with your political lives, because when you're in your political roles, you're supposed to be helping your party. And not everybody in your party, I mean, people in your party are expecting you to help. You went like this, but people in your party are expecting you to help them, right? Am I wrong about that? 
it's an interesting way to ask the question. Like, I think my constituents, and again, I don't, I'm not wearing that hat in this no, role, I know. but my constituents, I think if I told them that I'm like, I'm just working to advance my party, I think they'd be pretty disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think they want me to work towards a common, most of them, the majority of them want me to work towards actually solving problems rather than advancing partisan agendas. I mean, I am a Democrat. Reagan is a Republican. Reagan wants Republicans to win. I want Democrats to win. I think one of your questions we'll get to is like whether or not campaigning is about destroying the other side, which I don't subscribe. We'll talk about that later. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. Don't want to talk about that right now. But like, I, I don't, I don't feel a contradiction there. I don't know, Reagan. I think the only thing, the only feedback I've gotten, which is very limited. I mean, I don't get a ton of feedback or a lot of texts about not being loyal enough. I guess mm-hmm. sometimes there are hot button topics where yeah. I might have an opinion that sort of goes against the traditional Republican opinion. And I may not express that opinion quite as loudly or as forcefully or even as at all because I don't think it provides value in the context of where mm-hmm. we're talking about it. In this one podcast episode, me saying the thing that most of the people in my party either don't want to say or aren't willing to say is not always useful. And so sometimes I don't always do that because I just don't think it adds necessarily to it. There are times where I do express opposite opinions. I don't usually hear about them, probably because I'm not important enough for those opinions <laughs> to upset anybody. But I think the flip side of that is like if I'm not anything into the debate then there's no reason to like inject chaos or dissension for the sake of it, right? right? I just want the conversation to be productive and we're really a forum for other people to talk and then occasionally I will ask questions if I don't understand or want to get somewhere deeper. But for the most part, it's not about my opinions That's on the right. show. And so I don't feel the need to interject those for I think the most part. What I've actually gotten more, and this doesn't happen very often at all, but occasionally we will have a guest on. Where someone will be like, really? You're going to give that person a platform? Yeah, that's a good question. Really? And my answer, like, there's this, like, whole platforming conversation happening on a national level. I mean, our audience is, like, all different downloads and listens on all different platforms, almost always less than a 1,000 per episode. Like, this is a deeply engaged small group of people. Everyone knows who these people are, and everyone can get their opinions elsewhere. We tend to – I actually think we have probably become more – I don't want to say conservative because I don't mean like politically, but I mean like I'm less interested in having edgy conversations. Like some of our initial conversations, I can think of one with a Republican candidate for governor. I was like engaged in a bit more of a like pushback on it. And now I just like don't think that's my role mm-hmm. in the podcast. Host. I'm actually trying to what Alex used to call it is smart softball. I'm trying to suss out of you the best case version of your argument mm-hmm. and help you like flesh that out for an audience for their benefit rather than like. It's not my job to like try to push back. Well, that you know, one thing we tell every single person who comes to the podcast is we are not journalists. This yes, is not. That's right. This is specifically not journalism. If we were journalists, we would need to do those things, and we wouldn't be politicians because those things aren't typically very compatible. That's right. And so we're specifically not a journalist. We are contributing to the civic culture, but we're not doing journalism. And so I think that's an important. And we've made that. We've said that before on the podcast. We don't say it every episode, but we do say it occasionally. And it's something we tell all of our guests. We're not doing journalism. We're just focusing on trying to improve the discussion and get ideas out there and let people, you know, have a discussion. Can you articulate what a politician does? Well, that a journalist doesn't. I think I think the ideal role of a politician is to facilitate civic engagement so that they can kind of understand where the general population is looking to go and wants their government to go. I don't know that that always happens. Whereas a journalist's job is sort of to, I think, generally like flesh out what is happening mm-hmm. in all these rooms and in all the meetings, both where people are and where people, the public isn't. 
and then try to let people make informed decisions about who they want to support and what they want to support and how they want to support them with those facts. And I think that it's not always a politician's job to distribute all those facts, and that's more the role of journalists. We're not in the middle of that. We are much more on the facilitating the debate side of things. I wrote for my college newspaper, and uh, Ryan Frank, my newspaper advisor in college, it's not his quote, but he would often quote that the job of a journalist is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Right. And there's like a power <laughs> dynamic there that journalists are supposed to occupy. When I think of a journalist, I think of like a watchdog reporter or an investigative journalist, someone who's like holding people to account. And that's an incredibly important role. And we don't have enough journalists. In fact, I think we need a lot more watchdog journalism and investigative journalism. But it's a different space. It's not smart softball. It's not because the other thing we want is for people to come on our show, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> we want people to say yes and talk to us. So like we every guest, we say, if there's a question we ask you that you're uncomfortable with or you want to redo your answer, we're happy to edit it out. We're happy. Like it's we got that from Dax Shepard. If anyone listens to Dax's podcast, my wife does. And she said, you should start listening to some of these. And I do. It's I listened podcast. to the Jonas Brothers episode right before I went to the Jonas Brothers concert. No comment. <laughs> I'm Nothing still having either. more fun here. So I must be broken. <laughs> So, but that's, you've mentioned that part of your goal is to try to help each person that's coming, particularly talking about current issues, to be able to make their best case. Sure. That's a standard that we talk about in my classes about listening until you can make the other person's best mm -hmm. case. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So once you've done that, you've listened to the other person's best case. And I'm, I'm interested in your, I mean, both of your response. There's been times when you've had to listen to somebody who's saying something you disagree with entirely, but you're still trying to listen to help them make their best case. Does this affect you as a politician, having gone through that, force yourself to go through that exercise and listening to your opposition? A really important skill in politics that I've tried to practice and I think that the podcast helps me get better at is taking a complex issue and being able to describe it succinctly hmm. to an audience of people who aren't steeped in the complexities of that policy. So like the urban growth boundary is a perfect example. We've explored this with many guests over the last two or three years. And they've explained why they like it, why they don't, what they think it does to help preserve the environment, what others think it does to jack up home prices, whatever. I feel like that's one example of a really complicated policy area that I have a much clearer understanding and a much clearer way of communicating to people because I'm so consistently hearing from people who have a wide variety of views on it. Does that align with your thinking? I agree with that. I think the the skill that it helped me develop some more, which is I think especially during the COVID political cycle, everybody kind of retreated back into their comfortable, safe corners. You were, you know, seeking out communities that made you, you know, feel comfortable. And so people weren't outside their boxes in public as much and not interacting with people who disagreed with them as much, except for online, which is usually negative. There isn't a lot of those conversations I've seen go well. I was trying to explain there's something going around the Republican version of Oregon politics Twitter right now that is like about recruiting candidates. And I was trying to explain somebody about how difficult it is to recruit candidates and that person was not understanding. And I just had to leave the conversation because it wasn't going anywhere. And this was also an anonymous account on Twitter. So I have no idea really who <laughs> I'm talking to. The podcast and getting back into kind of the general social political interactions exposes you to people that you disagree with. And I think there's two pieces of that reminding you that there are people who don't think like you do. And then also reminding you that those people are human being people and they have thoughts and they have feelings and they should be treated with respect. And that is something... That's just totally missing from most of the online political discourse, and I wish 
we could find a way to get back to. I don't think it will happen online. I think we just need to do a lot less online. I say this, still having a Twitter. (laughs) Delete your Twitter. But I think the more we do in person, the better. I just think it's better. I'm exploring, with my consultant hat on very briefly, I'm exploring having candidates run very streamlined campaigns that are much more focused on direct voter contact Mm -hmm. and have almost no social media components, okay? Including one race where we won't even have that candidate have a social media page at all. We're actually just going to, you know, buy ads for Google for people who look for the candidate and not have a social. So if you want to talk to them, you can email them or you can call them. And I think that that is much more effective. I think assuming the candidate is responsive to this idea, they will get better interactions with people who they both agree with, disagree with, or who might just not know who they want to vote for. They will have better conversations. They will feel better about the campaign. They will get less negative feedback on stuff that doesn't matter, and they won't get positive feedback on stuff that doesn't matter. Because the stuff that goes viral online often doesn't matter or doesn't contribute to anything that is important, right? It's like weird moments where like somebody is flipping off Donald Trump at a thing. Like that's fine, but that doesn't contribute to the discourse or anything about no one's changing their vote. Should he be the Republican? Right. So like there's humans and we want to interact with the humans, not with the humans at the keyboards, me included. So I'm, I'm somewhat guilty of this, but. So what you've described sounds to me like the experience of having to listen and making yourself listen to you can understand very well other people's points of view makes you a stronger candidate. So Reagan, all these last time you've been working with Ben, you've been making him a stronger candidate. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And the Republicans else... can't win his seat, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah. You think there's no loss. No. Uh, <laughs> I like Ben. What's funny, I was talking to Ben about this. And I was like, I think we've only been like professionally working together for like maybe two years, but it feels like we've been working together for 10 or 20 years. Like it was very strange how just cohesive we built the relationship on the podcast and now it's a relationship off the podcast. I would say we're friends. I don't know if Ben will say that, but that's okay. (laughs) It'll be one-sided. But no, I think that like that helps too. Like if you can find people that are across the aisle that you can actually be friends with that you don't have to agree with them on anything. There's a ton of stuff that Ben and I, We'll forever disagree on, probably. Mm -hmm. But we're still going to have, we still have really incredible conversations about all these topics. And there are topics where I couldn't understand before the more like progressive Democrat point of view, and maybe he couldn't understand the conservative view. And then we have those discussions. We go, oh, okay, I can actually kind of understand that. I don't agree with it. I'm not going to support it. But now I can at least understand where they're coming from. So here's a question for both of you. Can you think of or imagine a time when a candidate has demonstrated their ability to do what you've been doing, to mm-hmm. listen and capture both sides and listen and be able to articulate them. Or you might end up voting for the person in the other party because they have that skill, even though their policies aren't that great from your point of view. So a riskier question for Ben to answer. Um, <laughs> I will say, I won't say which Democrat, but I've voted for a Democrat before where there's been a Republican, where I felt that the Republican wasn't qualified to hold yeah, that particular office. That's, that's right. Where I feel that we've fielded a Republican candidate that is qualified, I'll generally vote for the Republican candidate. And then nonpartisan races, it's just kind of a, it, it's really dependent on like how well are they addressing the local issues? Did I get a chance to interact with this person? Did I feel like they were responsive to my needs, et cetera? 
So by, so by I, qualified, how much weight do you give this ability to listen? That's a good question. It depends on the... It, I think the ability to listen is important, but not always the number one factor, because you can be a good listener and still be a really bad lawmaker. And so I think that, that it's a contributing factor, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's always the number one factor. Okay. Yeah. Well, ben, do you want to answer that same kind of question? I think I agree with... I don't think I've ever voted for a Republican... In a partisan race, I've never voted for a Republican over a Democrat, but the cases where I would, would be... There would have to be a something seriously wrong with the Democratic nominee, some sort of egregious behavior. I've imperiled my future political career. Everyone's going to ask me which Democrat I voted for. (laughs) (laughs) I think what's important in this, there's an implication, and I I can feel this, that people sort of have this, like people, including friends of mine and political allies of mine, have been like, like I've I've had people say, be careful of Reagan, or like implying (laughs) that... He might sway you. He's got eyes and Yeah, or like he's got an agenda. He's got his own agenda. And like what I think is really important is understanding that your willingness to talk to people who disagree with you actually has nothing to do with how moderate or progressive or conservative you are. Like you can hold whatever views you have over here. And even if you're a very far left Democrat, you engaging with someone who disagrees with you doesn't change that dynamic. But I think that's the perception, right? Is like, oh, Ben's talking to Reagan. He must be a moderate. And I think the reason that is, is because you look at the national politics and like the person who the Republicans hold up as like, oh, here's the key, like the most important progressive person is like AOC. There's like 20 to 30 other people in Congress who hold the exact same views that she does that are are co-sponsoring bills with Republicans on issues they agree with. And they never get the same level of coverage because, you know, Republicans are focused on making AOC a target and a boogeyman because that's helpful in campaigns. Did this with Nancy Pelosi. And, you know, I think Democrats do it with some of the Republicans. Right. And it's not it's not normal, like Mitch McConnell, people like that. But. Those there's a bunch of other senators in the United States Congress who are Republicans who hold the exact same views as Mitch McConnell, who are working on legislation with Democrats. But because there's like, okay, we can point to the one person who's in charge of this stuff and that person seems unreasonable. Everybody else who holds their views are also unreasonable. And that's just not that's just not the truth. I want to ask one more question and we'll open it to the audience, to to everybody else to have a question. We've advertised this as a discussion, and we've been discussing, so I guess it's okay. (laughs) But I'd like to have everybody else be part of it. And that's the question we referred to earlier about the feeling you get sometimes that campaign consultants must think that it's really effective to go negative and and unfair ways. Not just because if you find somebody actually doing something scandalous, sure, but making up stuff or skewing stuff or the... Like the phrase that I hear too often is somebody saying to a particular group, they're coming to get you. They're yeah. coming after you. Yeah. The Democrats are coming to get you to do that. Or the Republicans are coming to get you to do that. It's basically turning every person in the other, making the worst possible image of the other. Yeah. And this seems to be so consistent that, that it must be accepted as truth that this is effective or something. How does this, am I right about that or am I overstating it? And how does your your work for your podcast interact with this dynamic, which makes every, the rest of us sick? You're a political consultant. Yeah. Yeah, I do the <laughs> Defend evil. yourself. I've done the evils. No, I think that's a good one. The first thing I'm thinking of is like some of the hot button issues. Like for the Republicans, I guess one where we'd say like the Democrats are coming for you is like the Second Amendment. Like they're definitely trying to take your guns. Ben wants to take your guns, guys. It's not true. And I think that... One of the things that's difficult about that when you're trying to, you don't really get, if I, (laughs) you don't get a benefit as a political campaign, but if I articulate Ben's views on the Second Amendment with all the like intricacies and whatnot that they have, it's like you've lost people. And so it's just easier to tell the Second Amendment voters, don't vote for Ben because he wants to take your guns. 
or he's part of the party that wants to take your guns. I would say that that's Ben doesn't want to take your guns, but I would say his party does want to take your guns. Like that's a view I do hold. Like they've introduced, you know, Democrats have introduced legislation to, you know, place certain limits on the Second Amendment. Most yep, of background limits, checks, which so I think egregious. Not, yeah, <laughs> like not letting 18 year olds who are adults have firearms. Okay, that's one of the more recent examples of a bill that just recently died in the in the legislature. And I think it's stuff like that where it's like to the degree that. Like I view that as a true statement that they wanted to take certain people's guns away, and I think that. That's, but even even that true. language, yeah. take your guns, implies I'm knocking on your door, yes, and saying that's not what the, that's not what anybody's proposed. Well, anyone who uh, who's an 18 year old, I think I don't know what the did the bill say that they had to surrender firearms I don't or just think no it, new sales. I think it was no new sales. Yeah. So I mean, to uh, proving Ron's point, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've got me, Ben. I'm busted. Oh gosh. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I here's what I to directly answer your question. Yes, negative tax work. Yeah, yeah. they do. I mean, voter yes. they've researched this. Like voter behavior responds to. Oftentimes, what you see is the person engaging in the negative tax is also hurt. Their favorabilities go down too. Yes. but the person being targeted usually goes down goes more. Down more. What a terrible way to build a democracy. A B. Governor Kitzhaber, I was talking to him a couple weeks ago. He's someone I have a ton of respect and admiration for. And he was describing, he's like, I'm putting words in his mouth, but my takeaway from hearing him describe like how he approached this when he was a presiding officer was like, he made sure that he had weekly meetings when he was Senate president with the Republican minority leader mm. because he's like, I know we're going to hit each other and we're going to hate each other. And we're going to be frustrated at each other during this campaign season. But it is our responsibility as people of power in this state that as soon as this is over, we go back to governing. Mm -hmm. The campaigning is supposed to be a time-limited thing that transitions into governing. Mm -hmm. And I think the problem is increasingly the campaign season just lasts the whole time. And we're engaging in campaigning when we should be engaging in governing. And I think that's something I can't control the dynamics of political campaigns, but I can yeah. control how I approach productively governing. You can control your political campaign. That's right. And I That's think right. you're right about everybody campaigning. And this is one thing that I think is like, I was just reading about a guy who was a Texas state senator. So he'd never run for office before. In 2020, he ran for Texas state Senate and won. He's Republican. And then his congressional seat opened up and he ran for Congress in 2022 and won. And then he served in this Congress and he's just declared that he's going back to the Texas State Senate. He served one term in Congress and he was like, no, I'm done. <laughs> so, and it's like, I think Congress especially is a really bad place right now. The regular legislature is pretty normal. Like, I think that they, like, the campaigning happens and then people are sore for a couple of weeks and then we all go govern for the most part. And it's not that bad. But I think Ben's right, the negative tax work, you see it in the polling. Sometimes it results in victory, sometimes it doesn't. And that's where the hard part where it's just like you have to go attack this person that you may also have to go govern with later, which yeah. is always awkward. But I've seen, I think it's just kind of like everyone has accepted that it's just like political reality. Both parties are going to try to win. And then after they win, what are we going to do with, with the seats that we got, right? And I think that the more that we can contribute to the people who are getting elected, like empowering them to have good conversations, both amongst their... Because the other thing that you forget about is even though the Republicans and the Democrats all get elected from the same party, a lot of them don't know each other. And so they get there and they have to then meet people in their own party and people across their party. And one of the dynamics from COVID was that a lot of people were doing remote sessions. That was bad. People didn't get to meet each other. They were in you know Zoom committee meetings and then they'd come to the floor and vote. That was about it. And then there wasn't a lot of extracurricular activities happening where people get to talk outside of, you know, kind of outside of the work and a little bit more like in a setting where journalists aren't sitting there watching everything you say and members of the public are testifying and all that stuff. 
And and then the Capitol in Oregon specifically was under construction. And so that further limited because like a lot of the legislators were like have lunch together. There's a lounge in each chamber that both parties have access to where they can get food. And those weren't open because the Capitol was under construction. So a lot of these contributing factors that you would have to build those rapports were not existent for like two or four years. And that's really bad. And I think the other problem that Congress has is like somebody like Matt Getz is like campaigning for Florida governor from the seat of Congress and is just like imperiling everything that happens in the United States Congress for fun and then does a documentary on Twitter about it. that's bad. Like 100% that is bad. Do not do that. That is so bad for political discourse because it's pretty clear that his goal is just to cause problems, not to right. govern. And that's very frustrating, and I'm willing to call that out because number one, if he goes and t- if if Matt Getz goes and retweets me on Twitter, Twitter for right? negatives, I will shut down my Twitter account <laughs> because it, the incoming replies will be like enormous. But I think it's incumbent upon both parties to where we can point at the pe- the bad actors in our party and shun them behind closed doors because like the bad behavior shouldn't be rewarded with if Matt Getz becomes governor his bad behavior was rewarded right and so we should encourage as much as possible that to not happen doesn't mean people can't run for higher office doesn't mean they shouldn't you know do things that they think are going to be popular with voters but it doesn't mean like bad behavior bad interpersonal behavior like that shouldn't be celebrated it should be shunned so let me follow up this is still on my question i'm following up i'm still going to keep my promise <laughs> and i'm talking um, a lot too so ben should answer um, it too about, about the bad behavior <laughs> in our last school board election there was a group that had some money available to candidates mm-hmm. and they offered it to the candidates but they said we're going to be watching all your campaign stuff and if we have a local uh, civility pledge that would that our mm-hmm. local united's neighbors group put together jack mm-hmm. And Liz went on that with me awesome. and a bunch of other people. And they basically said, we're going to hold you to this. And one of their candidates was kind of pushing it. And they called him in and said, you're not doing what we asked you to do. We're going to withhold or go public with our withholding of mm. support for you unless you clean it up. Is there a future for that kind of thing to spread? Would there be that dynamic? What do you think? So I think some of that kind of already happens yeah, in I was some say. ways. The people who fund, you know, you've got, you've got your donors locally. If you do something that makes your local donors, whether they're one party or another, mad, they are going to pull their support from you, and you're going to feel that. You're going to get texts. You're going to get phone calls, right? And again, it's not happening in public. It's behind closed mm-hmm. doors. I think that stuff tends to be a lot more effective. And then if you do, like, there's the caucuses. And the caucuses are basically the leadership of both parties in each of the chambers. And they generally can direct more. They can say, this race is a competitive race, and, you know, we're going to funnel money into it. And that's a signal that people who are supportive of these different campaigns will get involved I think, there. But I think what Ron's saying is, like, the incentive of... Oh, oh, the incentive of the public. Being, behaving well because you've got um, an external force. I, that's interesting. I'm skeptical. Yeah. I think it could work at the local level. Nonpartisan. Yes. City council races, school board races, yeah. where you've got, if you can get a group of powerful community leaders, and by powerful I mean like chamber of commerce, yeah. former local elected officials. Yeah, businesses. Um, businesses, and, budget committee mm-hmm. members, whatever, to say like, hey, we are civic leaders. We care more about good process and community building than we do the outcome of this election. And we're throwing our support behind it whoever engages in the right behavior or will stay neutral if no one does that kind of a thing. I think there's, that's really promising. Great idea, actually. As a consultant, I could sell that. But what I think, I won't say which race, but there's one candidate running for Congress in Oregon right now who there's a competitive primary and she has basically said, let's run a clean campaign. Let's get all the candidates to agree. We're going to run a clean campaign. We're not going to go negative on anyone. 
it just so happened that that candidate has a name ID that's like two or three times higher than their yeah, opponents yeah, and yeah. they're starting way ahead and they've yeah. got more money. That's usually a political game. Yeah. It's so almost always a political game. Usually like the person who's ahead is going to imply like, oh, we should all do this. It's good for everybody. So you kind of at the local level, I do think everyone basically starts even. Yeah. So there's more of an opportunity to do that. Yeah. I really like the idea. Okay. All right. I promise that we'd let people in the group uh, ask questions. So does anybody have a question for uh, our panelists? Okay. So the question was whether these two guys are running a podcast. I'm putting that on so that we can yes. hear it on the mic. So the Oregon Bridge podcast is the podcast that Ben and I appear on sometimes together if schedules allow. However, both of us are busy with like three or four different hats that we wear. So sometimes I'll record an episode with somebody that I know a little bit better and can set up the timing and we'll push that episode out. And sometimes Ben will do that on his side. And it's more just about like making our calendars meet and then the types of guests that each of us are able to get. Because usually the person coming on doesn't know both of us. Most of the time they only know one of us. And so then they're kind of taking for, they're like, okay, you know, so that sometimes they'll come on with both if it allows. Sometimes we'll just do the one. We'd rather have more episodes than fewer episodes with both of us. And so we just decided sometimes we'll do individual podcasts, but then we usually try to be together at least once a month. Podcasts? Any podcast app. I mean, the Apple podcast app or Android. Yeah, you can search the Oregon Bridge and it'll appear in any podcast app. We say yes. podcast like it's this big fancy thing. It's really just like it's a curated conversation <laughs> where we talk to someone interesting and then we upload it to our YouTube channel. You can get it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. My yeah. understanding is we can take the computer and throw it into the cloud and then... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's something, right. something like that. We upload it every Wednesday but all the podcasts are available so if you're like well, I think this one sounds boring. I want to hear the one about Tom McCall then you can go find that one, download it. Yeah, it's a cool, cool thing. End part one.